Chapter Forty Five of the Fortunes of Glencore. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortunes of Glencore by Charles James Lever. Chapter Forty Five. Some Sad Reveries. "'Have you any plans, Glencore?' asked Upton, as they posted along towards Dover. "'None,' was the brief reply. "'Nor any destination you desire to reach?' "'Just as little.' "'Such a state as yours, then, I take it, is about the best thing going in life. Every move one makes is attended with so many adverse considerations. Every goal, so separated from us by unforeseen difficulties, that an existence, even without what is called an object, has certain great advantages. I am curious to hear them, said the other half cynically. For myself, said Upton, not accepting the challenge, the brief intervals of comparative happiness I have enjoyed have been in periods when complete repose, almost torpor, has surrounded me, and when the mere existence of the day has engaged my thoughts. What became of memory all this while? Memory, said Upton, laughing, I hold my memory in proper subjection it no more dares obtrude upon me uncalled for than would my valet come into my room till i ring for him of the slavery men endure from their own faculties i have no experience and of course no sympathy for them i will not say that i cannot compassionate sufferings though i have not felt them are you quite sure of that asked glencore almost sternly is not your very pity a kind of contemptuous sentiment towards those who sorrow without reason the strong man's estimate of the weak man's sufferings believe me there is no true condolence where there is not the same experience of woe I should be sorry to lay down so narrow a limit to fellow-feeling, said Upton. You told me a few moments back, said Glencore, that your memory was your slave. How, then, can you feel for one like me, whose memory is his master? How understand a path that never wanders out of the shadow of the past? There was such an accent of sorrow impressed upon these words that upton did not desire to prolong a discussion so painful and thus for the remainder of the way little was interchanged between them they crossed the strait by night and as upton stole upon deck after dusk he found glencore seated near the wheel gazing intently at the lights on shore from which they were fast receding. 
"'I am taking my last look at England, Upton,' said he, affecting a tone of easy indifference. "'You surely mean to go back again one of these days,' said Upton. "'Never, never,' said he solemnly. "'I have made all my arrangements for the future, every disposition regarding my property. I have neglected nothing, so far as I know, of those claims which, in the shape of relationship, the world has such reverence for. And now I bethink me of myself. I shall have to consult you, however, about this boy, said he, faltering in the words. The objection I once entertained to his bearing my name exists no longer. He may call himself Massey, if he will. The chances are, added he, in a lower and more feeling voice, that he rejects a name that will only remind him of a wrong. My dear Glencore, said Upton with real tenderness, do I apprehend you aright? Are you at last convinced that you have been unjust? Has the moment come in which your better judgment rises above the evil counsels of prejudice and passion? Do you mean, am I assured of her innocence? broke in Glencore wildly. Do you imagine, if I were so, that I could withhold my hand from taking a life so infamous and dishonored as mine? The world would have no parallel for such a wretch. Mark me, Upton, cried he fiercely. There is no torture I have yet endured would equal the bare possibility of what you hint at. Good heavens, Glencore, do not let me suppose that selfishness has so marred and disfigured your nature that this is true. Bethink you of what you say. Would it not be the crowning glory of your life to repair a dreadful wrong and acknowledge before the world that the fame you had aspersed was without stain or spot? And with what grace should I ask the world to believe me? Is it when expiating the shame of a falsehood that I should call upon men to accept me as truthful? Have I not proclaimed her from one end of Europe to the other dishonored? If she be absolved, what becomes of me? This is unworthy of you, Glencore, said Upton severely nor if illness and long-suffering had not impaired your judgment had you ever spoken such words i say once more that if the day came that you could declare to the world that her fame had no other reproach than the injustice of your own unfounded jealousy that day would be the best and the proudest of your life the proud day that publishes me a calumniator of all that i was most pledged to defend the deliberate liar against the obligation of the holiest of all contracts you forget upton but i do not forget that it was by this very argument you once tried to dissuade me from my act of vengeance you told me i 
in words that still ring in my ears, to remember that if by any accident or chance her innocence might be proven, I could never avail myself of the indication without first declaring my own unworthiness to profit by it. That if the wife stood forth in all the pride of purity, the husband would be a scoff and a shame throughout the world. When I said so, said Upton, it was to turn you from a path that could not but lead to ruin. I endeavored to deter you by an appeal that interested even your selfishness. Your subtlety has outwitted itself, Upton, said Glencore with a bitter irony. It is not the first instance on record where blank cartridge has proved fatal. One thing is perfectly clear, said Upton boldly. The man who shrinks from the repair of a wrong he has done on the consideration of how it would affect himself and his own interests shows that he cares more for the outward show of honor than its real and sustaining power. And will you tell me, Upton, that the world's estimate of a man's fame is not essential to his self-esteem, or that there yet lived one who would brave obloquy without, by the force of something within him? This I will tell you, replied Upton, that he who balances between the two is scarcely an honest man and that he who accepts the show for the substance is not a wise one. These are marvellous sentiments to hear from one whose craft has risen to a proverb, and whose address in life is believed to be not his meanest gift. I accept the irony in all good humor. I go farther, Glencore, I stoop to explain. When any one in the great and eventful journey of life seeks to guide himself safely, he has to weigh all the considerations and calculate all the combinations adverse to him. The straight road is rarely or never possible, even if events were, which they are not, easy to read. They must be taken in combination with others and with their consequences. The path of action becomes necessarily devious and winding, and compromises are called for at every step. It is not in the moment of shipwreck that a man stops to inquire into petty details of the articles he throws into a longboat. He is bent on saving himself as best he can. He seizes what is next to him, if it suit his purpose. Now, were he to act in this manner, in all the quiet security of his life on shore, his conduct would be highly blamable. No emergency would warrant his taking what belonged to another. No critical moment would drive him to the instinct of self-preservation. Just the same is the interval between action and reflection. Give me time and forethought, and I will employ something better and higher than craft. My subtlety, as you like to call it, is not my best weapon. I only use it in emergency. 
"I read the matter differently," said Glencore sulkily. "I could, perhaps, offer another explanation of your practice." "Pray let me hear it. We are all in confidence here, and I promise you I will not take badly whatever you say to me." Glencore sat silent and motionless. "Come." shall i say it for you glencore for i think i know what is passing in your mind the other nodded and he went on you would tell me in plain words that i keep my craft for myself my high principles for my friends glencore only smiled but upton continued so then i have guessed aright and the very worst you can allege against this course is that what I bestow is better than what I retain. One of Solomon's proverbs may be better than a shilling, but which would a hungry man rather have? I want no word-fencing, Upton. Still less do I seek what might sow distrust between us. This much, however, has life taught me the great trials of this world are like its great maladies providence has meant them to be fatal we call in the doctor in the one case or the counsellor in the other out of habit rather than out of hope our own consciousness has already whispered that nothing can be of use but we like to do as our neighbors and so we take remedies and follow instructions to the last. The wise man quickly detects by the character of the means how emergent is the case believed to be, and rightly judges that recourse to violent measures implies the presence of great peril. If he be really wise, then he desists at once from what can only torture his few remaining hours they can be given to better things than the agonies of such agency to this exact point has my case come and by the counsels you have given me do i read my danger your only remedy is as bad as the malady it is meant to cure i cannot take it Accepting your own imagery, I would say, said Upton, that you are one who will not submit to an operation of some pain that he might be cured. Glencore sat moodily for some moments without speaking. At last he said, I feel as though continual change of place and scene would be a relief to me. Let us rendezvous, therefore somewhere for the autumn, and meanwhile I'll wander about alone. What direction do you propose to take? The Schwarzwald and the Hohenthal, first. I want to revisit a place I knew in happier days. Memory must surely have something besides sorrows to render us. I owned a little cottage there once, near Steg, I fished and read Uland for the summer long. I wonder if I could resume the same life. 
I knew the whole village, the blacksmith, the schoolmaster, the Dorfichter, all of them. Good, kind souls they were. How they wept when we parted. Nothing consoled them but my having purchased the cottage and promised to come back again. Upton was glad to accept even this much of interest in the events of life, and drew Glencore on to talk of the days he had passed in the solitary region. As in the dreariest landscape, a ray of sunlight will reveal some beautiful effects, making the eddies of the dark pool to glitter, lighting up the russet moss, and giving to the half-dried lichen a tinge of bright color, so will, occasionally, memory throw over a life of sorrow a gleam of happier meaning. Faces and events, forms and accents that once found the way to our hearts come back again. Faintly and imperfectly it may be, but with a touch that revives in us what we once were. It is the one sole feature in which self-love becomes amiable. When, looking back on our past, we cherish the thought of a time before the world had made us skeptical and hard-hearted, Glencore warmed as he told of that tranquil period when poetry gave a color to his life, and the wild conceptions of genius ran like a thread of gold through the whole web of existence. He quoted passages that had struck him for their beauty or their truthfulness. He told how he had tried to attune his own mind to the tone that vibrated in the magic music of verse, and how the very attempt had inspired him with gentler thoughts, a softer charity, and a more tender benevolence towards his fellows. Tiak is right, Upton, when he says there are two natures in us, distinct and apart, one, the imaginative and ideal, the other, the actual and the sensual. Many shake them together and confound them, making of the incongruous mixture that vile compound of inconsistency where the beautiful and the true are ever warring with the deformed and the false. Their lives a long struggle with themselves, a perpetual contest between high hope and base enjoyment. A few keep them apart, retaining through their worldliness some hallowed spot in the heart where ignoble desires and mean aspirations have never dared to come. A fewer still have made the active work of life subordinate to the guiding spirit of purity. Adventuring on no road unsanctioned by high and holy thoughts, caring for no ambitions but such as make us nobler and better. I once had a thought of such a life, and even the memory of it, like the prayers we have learned in our childhood, has a hallowing influence over after years. If that poor boy, Upton, and his lips trembled on the words, 
if that poor boy could have been brought up thus humbly if he had been taught to know no more than an existence of such simplicity called for what a load of care might it have spared his heart and mine you have read over those letters i gave you about him asked upton who eagerly availed himself of the opportunity to approach an almost forbidden theme i have read them over and over said glencore sadly in all the mention of him i read the faults of my own nature a stubborn spirit of pride that hardens as much as elevates a resentful temper too prone to give way to its own impulses an overconfidence in himself too always ready to revenge its defeats on the world about him these are his defects and they are mine poor fellow that he should inherit all that i have of bad and yet not be heir to the accidents of fortune which make others so lenient to faults if upton heard these words with much interest no less was he struck by the fact that glencore made no inquiry whatever as to the youth's fate the last letter of the packet revealed the story of an eventful duel and the boy's escape from massa by night with his subsequent arrest by the police and yet in the face of incidents like these he continued to speculate on traits of mind and character nor even adverted to the more closely touching events of his fate by many an artful hint and ingenious device did sir horace try to tempt him to some show of curiosity but all were fruitless glencore would talk freely and willingly of the boy's disposition and his capacity he would even speculate on the successes and failures such a temperament might meet with in life but still he spoke as men might speak of a character in a fiction ingeniously weighing causalities and discussing chances never even by accident approaching the actual story of his life or seeming to attach any interest to his destiny upton's shrewd intelligence quickly told him that this reserve was not accidental and he deliberated within himself how far it was safe to invade it at length he resumed the attempt by adroitly alluding to the spirited resistance the boy had made to his capture and the consequences one might naturally enough ascribe to a proud and high-hearted youth thus tyrannically punished i have heard something said upton of the severities practised at kufstein and they recall the horrible tales of the inquisition the terrible contrivances to extort confessions expedients that often break down the intellect whose secrets they would discover so that one actually shudders at the name of a spot so associated with evil glencore placed his hands over his face but did not utter a word and again upton went on urging by every device he could think of some indication that might mean interest if not anxiety when suddenly 
he felt Glencore's hand grasp his arm with violence. "'No more of this, Upton,' cried he sternly. "'You do not know the torture you are giving me.' There was a long and painful pause between them, at the end of which Glencore spoke, but it was in a voice scarcely above a whisper, and every accent of which trembled with emotion. "'You remember one sad and memorable night, Upton, in that old castle in Ireland, the night when I came to the resolution of this vengeance. I sent for the boy to my room. We were alone there together, face to face. It was such a scene as could brook no witness.' nor dare I now recall its details as they occurred. He came in frankly and boldly, as he felt he had a right to do. How he left that room, cowed, abashed, and degraded, I have yet before me. Our meeting did not exceed many minutes in duration. Neither of us could have endured it longer. Brief as it was, we ratified a compact between us. It was this. Neither was ever to question or inquire after the other, as no tie should unite, no interest should bind us. Had you seen him then, Upton, cried Glencore wildly, the proud disdain with which he listened to my attempts at excuse, the haughty distance with which he seemed to reject every thought of complaint, the stern coldness with which he heard me plan out his future, you would have said that some curse had fallen upon my heart, or it could never have been dead to traits which proclaimed him to be my own. In that moment it was my lot to be like him who held out his own right hand to be first burned ere he gave his body to the flames. We parted without an embrace. Not even a farewell was spoken between us. While I gloried in his pride, had he but yielded ever so little, had one syllable of weakness, one tear escaped him. I had given up my project, reversed all my planned vengeance, and taken him to my heart as my own. But no, he was resolved on proving by his nature that he was of that stern race from which, by a falsehood, I was about to exclude him. It was as though my own blood hurled a proud defiance to me. As he walked slowly to the door, his glove fell from his hand. I stealthily caught it up. I wanted to keep it as a memorial of that bitter hour, but he turned hastily around and plucked it from my hand. The action was even a rude one, and with a mocking smile, as though he read my meaning and despised it, he departed. You now have heard 
the last secret of my heart in this sad history. Let us speak of it no more. And with this, Glencore arose and left the deck. End of chapter 45